You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 002, where I continue my conversation with Jason Gerlock, managing partner and CEO of Sunrise Capital Partners. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Now, let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. The percentage on it, but I mean, how much of the original program, if we call it that, would you say is still kept in evolution? Um, and also, what's the profile of evolution in terms of what kind of targeted return and what expected volatility do you, do you uh, go for? Sure. So, so the way I like to explain Sunrise Evolution is is just that an evolution. In other words, nothing we've done historically has been thrown out. Everything we've done historically is still in Sunrise Evolution. But if if you if you envision a piece of paper and you divide it into four quadrants, what we've done is we've taken our legacy approach, our long-term trend-following approach and put it in one quadrant. And for explanatory purposes, you can call that quadrant A. Uh so in, in box A, quadrant A, we have a grouping of 50 uh, medium to long-term trend-following models that we think are highly evolved and, and quite good at what they do. But at the end of the day, they are trend-following models. So in environments where trend-following is not particularly effective, those models will probably not be particularly effective. Um, we're, we're happy to admit that. We, we are the first to say that there is no perfect system out there. Every system has weaknesses. The key is, in our view, bringing together complementary systems that have strengths that cover for the weaknesses of other strategies. And that's really what Sunrise Evolution is all about. So in box A, quadrant A, we have our long-term trend-following models still working. They can have uh, as much as you know, nearly nearly half the kind of risk and capital allocation at times and other times, depending on where we are in the market cycle, they could have very little of the capital and risk allocation of what we're doing. It all is going to depend on the environment we're in. Um, quadrant B, we've installed a set of shorter term, what we, what we call um, impulse recognition models or almost kind of trend or mean divergent models. In other words, these models look in shorter time frames. They're looking for particular uh, patterns that spin off of trends mm -hmm. uh, that we found to, to repeat themselves, particularly in uh, choppier market environments. And um, you know, this the, the set of models in, in family B holds trades on an average of three days or so okay. versus Versus quadrant A, our long and medium-term trend-following models, which can hold trades on average of 40 to 50 days. So very different, 
different models, looking for different things, complementary. The correlation between those two families of models is in the 0.2 range. So they're very different approaches. Sure. Um, quadrant C um, is another set of models. These are more um, reversionary in nature. They're not pure mean reversion, but they're looking for a different inefficiency um, in markets. They're shorter term. Again, they hold in the kind of the 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 two to three day range as opposed to the 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 several month range of of system family A. Um, they will uh, look for a slightly different inefficiency and a slightly different pattern than those in B. And so the correlation between the the models in box B and model C is is quite low. Sure. And then lastly, we have a fourth quadrant, D, where we've put something that's quite different. It's, uh, it, it's, it's actually the genesis of our, of our standalone equity models. Okay. And what it does is simply try and use a, a variety of, of trend following and pattern neck recognition approaches to capture bursts of beta when the U.S. equity market is in a, in, in a bull period. And you might say, well, what, boy, that's an odd thing to add to this. But when you assess it and look at how it correlates to the other three quadrants, again, the correlations are very low. And that's really what we like to see. Sure. Four different sets of models working together because they are looking for different inefficiencies over different time frames and in slightly different markets. They don't all overlap in every market they trade. And when you bring them together, you get something that's very special. And that's really what we were seeing during our heavy R&D days in the you know, 2010, 11, 12 timeframe. And that's what gave us so much excitement when we launched this thing on the 1st of 2013. And, and we think this is the reason why it performed so well last year and why we think it will perform more durably than long-term trend following alone going forward. And do you do you allow all models to go long or and and short? Because of course, a lot of people are not maybe familiar with the fact that trend following as such, ninety percent of the profits over time are made from the long side, not the short side. Yes. So do you? I mean, do you take that into account? Uh, I mean, I could imagine that Group D might not really be looking for short sides, but I don't know this. But I mean, yeah. do do you do you look at that as well? Sure. I mean, we. We first we try with each uh, quadrant. We try to build something that, as a standalone, is as good as it can be, independent of everything else. And so, in that lens, we think all each of them are fairly robust on their own, and they're allowed to do what they do. So, system family A, long to medium term trend following, is long short, just like any you know solid trend following sure. uh, approach might be. Um, it can it can do very well in 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 on the long side of markets, but it can do very well on the short side of markets. It had a fantastic 2008, and much of the profit it generated in 2008 was on the short side. Sure. But at the same time, you know it it can also do very well in long environments. Last year, System Family A was quite strong. Um, it captured a lot of the ec long equity rally. Um, uh, the bull equity rally we saw last year, but it was also very good in gold and copper, which went in the opposite direction. Sure. System family B also can go long and short. Okay. Um, it doesn't trade in as many markets as A because it requires a little bit more precise execution. And there are some markets that we're not comfortable with in terms of liquidity and how they function. 
Sure. So it, 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 it trades a li more limited set of markets. But again, it can be long and short. Now, there could be a situation where system A is very long in something, but system B is short because it's seeing a shorter term impulse pattern off of a trend, for example, that it finds to be a good opportunity. So there are plenty of occasions where A will be largely long in a market and B might have some short positions in the market. And that's okay because our view is each of these models should be allowed to kind of be what they're going to be independently. We've built them all to run well independently. We've decided to marry them together after the fact because they complement each other very well and because we've come, be, come up with what we think is a very good systematic approach to balancing them, which we can get to. Sure. C uh, can also be long or short. It trades a subset of the markets that A does, again, for execution concerns, liquidity issues. Uh, and just the fact that there are some markets where the pattern C is looking for, we've just found don't exist. Yeah. And, and, and conversely, there are some markets that work very well with C that don't work as well in A or B. So that's, you know, again, treating each model as family as its own entity first and understanding it in depth and worrying about how it interacts with the other models as the secondary measure is kind of the, the thinking there. And then D, uh, long only. So it can be long equity or it can be in cash. Sure. That is it. It does not take short positions at this time. It might down the road as we continue to evolve it. But right now, we think it performs best when it is capturing uh, beta from bull rallies in the U.S. stock market and when it is sitting quietly in cash during periods when the U.S. equity market is, is stalled out or declining. Hmm. Makes sense. I mean, each group needs to has a purpose in the portfolio and diversification is key. So, I mean, I think you've uh, resolved that in a very uh, unique and, and, and interesting way. We think so. And I, and I think, you know, again, what what we like people to focus on when we when we present to them. And by the way, anyone who's hearing this podcast, you know, we're not going to have anywhere enough time for me to go into the kind of depth that I'm sure most investors would want me to. And, you know, we welcome discussions where we can get more in depth in this when 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 people reach out to sunrise individually but for purposes of today i, I you know I, what i want to emphasize if nothing else is the fact that ultimately the key to all of this is low correlation you know i have in front of me a chart that 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 summarizes why we think our approach makes sense if you look at the correlation of system family a to system family b over the past 20 years it is 0.26. Mm. Correlation between A and C over the past 20 years, 0.20. System family A to system family D over the past 20 years, 0.24. Sure. And, and, and those numbers repeat themselves. If you look at B's correlations, I, I'm looking at 0.26. I'm looking at negative 0.05. I'm looking at negative 0.10. Uh, system family C correlations, very similar. So in other words, these are different horses running different courses. They're doing different things. We don't expect them all to work at the same time. And in fact, most days, some of these models are losing money. And that's okay with us. Absolutely. You don't want everything you're doing to make money at the same time too frequently because that means you have one trade on. That means you're really at, at risk for something terrible happening in your book. Taking it one step further... And I can share this slide with people who, who reach out to Sunrise later on. Within each of these families of models, A, B, C, and D, is some diversification. For example, in system family B, if you take 
the models and, and compare them to each other, what you'll find is that intrafamily, the correlation is low. In fact, negative months. So when this when this system system B is not performing well, the intra intra family correlation of the models is 0.15, very low. So again, it's all about making sure the things you are doing are complementary and not crowding trades and correlating in a way that a, a single market event can wipe your strategy out. That's what this is all about. And that's really this is really just a continuation of what we've always tried to do. Diversification's the only thing the market gives you for free and we have always tried to capture as much diversification diversification as we can. Not simply by trading different sectors, which we do. Not simply by trading different markets, which we do. Not simply by trading different time frames, which we do, but by bringing in different theories of of logic, different techniques, different um, ideas and assumptions about how markets are going to behave and blending them together, knowing that everyone is wrong once in a while. And some people are wrong a lot of the time. And just make sure you have something in your portfolio that's right when something else is wrong. Sure. So. No, it may, I mean, it makes perfect sense. What, what I'd love to do, I mean, I know, of course, that we uh, we could talk for four hours about these things, but what I'd like to try and do uh, for the benefit of your of the audience is really to just from a really basic but and a kind of an overview, if you could just give a couple of examples of how models can be different. I mean, take a traditional trend following model and talk maybe a little bit about what typically would trigger a trade and how you would get into that trade and how you would get out. Just very, very basic overview, but then maybe an example of a, of a model that is very different from that, just to give people sure. a sense of all you've just described and how you've grouped it into different categories, but then actually taking a little bit of a dive into, you know, just a couple of them to to really spell it out. Because that's what we're always um, kind of attacked uh, uh, about, you know, it's a black box. No, it's not. I know, it, it, you know, it's completely transparent to you, of course. But let's try and help everyone just by giving them an example of what this really means in practice, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. I, I can do that in fairly crude terms. Um, you know, my partners can certainly do it much more elegantly than I ever could. But, you know, again, it's it's a I think the best way to look at it is to look at an example. So think about the gold market last year. Sure. I don't have the chart in front of me. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But you know what happened in gold uh, in 2013. Sure. It, it 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 collapsed fairly significantly. Um, and it was pretty orderly for a while, but then it, it kind of started to, to get choppy and it was, it was a tricky trade. We were able to find profits different ways using models A, B, and C. Now, obviously models D didn't participate in that. Sure. Those are equity only, but let's look at that using A, B, and C. So Great. when gold really kind of hit its peak and then started to fall off the cliff and, and cascade downward sharply, Model set A got very interested. As you know, a, a good trend following model isn't necessarily going to predict the top or a bottom of a market, but it will notice a market change off of a top or a bottom of a market, Absolutely. either using um, moving averages or breakouts or some other technique. The technique really isn't that important. You know, spotting a trend is is not that difficult. Most 
most you know good CTAs know how to do that. Sure. The question is how you manage your position sizes once you've spotted that opportunity and and how you trade in and out of it. But so think of that that gold move, you know, right after the the, the price collapsed and started to tumble downward, our our models A got very interested and a lot of those models started to to pile into that trade. Now we look at long-term trend following a little differently than a lot of our peers. Our view is that the 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 best opportunity to capture um, profit in a trend trade is early, okay, as opposed to late. Mm -hmm. So so as soon as that gold price started to tumble down, Model A got active, and it's as I mentioned, there are fifty different kind of models in that family. Um, they all started to watch gold very closely, and one would come on and then maybe another one would come on and maybe three and they started to kind of pile in as that trend got stronger and stronger but they they piled in more towards the early part of that move so that you know we had our risk we like to have our risk on in the long-term trend following space as early in the trend as possible because we think that is the point where the trend is most likely to continue yeah. As trends kind of extend themselves longer and longer, the risk of reversal becomes stronger. So you don't want to have massive positions on later in a trend because that one event can wipe you out. So we kind of piled into that trade early and then let our intelligent long-term trend following models and system family A do what they do. Some come off in profit targets. Some come off um, – in you know fairly tight trading trailing stop sure. scenarios, some some trades just didn't pan out and came off altogether on money stops because there was some volatility. But ultimately, every one of these fifty trades had you know had a different kind of destiny to it. Um, but hung on, to, you know, but 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 be, being long term, hung on to that gold move for quite some time, sure. and and carried it down almost probably to its bottom, and then probably you know gave back a little on 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 a reversal off of the bottom but ultimately captured a good part of that move downward hmm. and stayed in, largely stayed in. Okay. So that's system family A, long-term trend following, average hold period, 40-day type period, you know, kind of holding on, eating some of the volatility, you know, giving giving traders some white, a few white knuckle days because that's what <laughs> long-term trend, trend following is. Yep. Now, set all that aside, so what is system family B doing? Initially, it did nothing. Right, gold just started moving downward in a fairly orderly way, and B wasn't that interested. Sure. But then all of a sudden, there were some interruptions in that downward trend. Mm. Think of B. Uh, think of the gold trend, you know, coming down, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the the price spikes back up for a little bit, yeah. and then spikes back down towards that trend again. Those little impulses are what B is looking for. All right. And all they're looking for is to capture a certain piece of that move. And I, I can detail that in, in meetings with investors later. I won't get into kind of the, sure. the mechanics of it. But, but they're looking only for a small little portion of kind of these what we call impulses off trends. Mm. And that's exactly what they did. So every time there was one of those impulse impulses happening, system family B would get in, sometimes long, sometimes short. It, depend, it depends when and where that impulse happened. But it would it would kind of grab a piece of that impulse, hopefully take some profits, and then be out within two or three days. Okay? Great. And this was happening all along the fall of gold prices over the long, over the broader picture. Okay? So very different inefficiency going on there. B was only interested in that. 
it would come in and then get out. It would come in and then get out. Whereas all along, system family A is in that trade. Sure. Short gold. Okay. Now, what about system family C? After gold, you know, hit its bottom for the year and started to creep back up, C got interested. Sure. Okay. Now, the, the, the market at that point was moving in a different direction. It was starting to move upward a bit, and it was still doing it in kind of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a choppy way, such that it would go up a bit and then retrace and then go up a bit and then retrace and then go up a bit and retrace. And those little retracements were of interest to system family C. Sure. Okay? Just that little retracement piece. It wasn't buying into a long-term upward trend in gold, but it was buying into the fact that we were seeing some retracement uh, we were seeing prices start to wander off from what we thought was kind of the likely path of gold. And so C was buying little pieces of that, going in and coming out, going in and coming out, and finding profits in its own way. Sure. Meanwhile, system family A at that point was probably largely scaled out because the, you know, the, the price had probably hit bottom, was starting to climb up a bit more. And so a lot of the profits had been taken, and it was mostly shaken out. So Ultimately, if you looked at our book, we were probably making money in some of the models on, on any given day in gold and losing money in other models on any given day. And then the next day, maybe it reversed. But you had three different families of models eating different parts of the gold move up and down. And if I could you know, show it to you graphically, it would make a lot more sense. But I think that's the best way to think about it is to take an actual example and, and, and retrace what your models did. They did very different things. They did it over very different time frames. They were looking for very different patterns and inefficiencies. And they did it in a, in a way that was complementary such that if you look back at last year, we made a lot of money trading gold. Yeah. No, it's a great, uh, great explanation. So uh, I think that's very helpful. And the other thing I think people probably don't realize is that I'm assuming that when you do have the models engage they're actually not taking particular big risks every time they get in and out. No, 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 no. Absolutely. That's a very good point. We believe in diversification uh, by, by time frame, by technique, and all these other la layers because you never want to have too much riding on any one outcome. And, and, and small position sizes are key to that. As Going back to system family A, as I mentioned, 50 models in there. No single one of those models is going to take more than, you know, perhaps 15 or 20 basis points of risk. Obviously, the size will vary on the move we're looking at, volatility sure. and other factors. But, yes, very small pieces with each each trade. Um, and that way, if a few go wrong, and they always do, you're not unduly hurt by any single one of them. So absolutely, sure. all of our all of these families consist of multiple models that take things in in fairly small pieces. And do the models operate completely independently, or do you have some kind of overall risk um, matrix that l can limit the the risk that they take, or, or are they completely autonomous? There are some overlay limits uh to the whole system the whole I, I would say think of think of the piece of paper we drew earlier with the four quadrants sure. around that piece of paper dry dotted line that dotted line is essentially an algorithm that weights capital and the risk we're willing to take amongst the different models okay 
Okay. So there are budgets. Each model gets a budget on a given day of how much risk it can take overall, how much capital it can allocate. It has the flexibility to allocate or not. In other words, we can tell system family A, you can take up to X percent of risk today. Sure. If the opportunity is there, if there are no trends, then system family A will be quiet. But at least we'll have the opportunity to do that. But that is all governed algorithmically outside of the four corners of the paper. Think of it as kind of kind of our, our capital allocation algorithm. And, and it's a powerful tool. And, and let me give you just some examples so you understand. If you look back over the last 20 years, um, what you'll see is that the, the amount of capital and risk that each system family is allocated varies significantly. For example, system family A has had a maximum risk allocation of as much as 22% and as little as 10% over the last 20 years. Okay. System family B has had as much uh, risk allocation as 24% and as low as 7%. System family C has been as high as 36% and as low as 14% of, of risk. And system family D has been as high as 39% and as low as 17% um, of our risk. So that's quite a bit of variance. It's not going to change a lot day to day, but over the course of months and years, it can vary quite a bit. And that is a function of the market we're in. Which system is showing the most volatility? You know, which system uh, is is showing the most kind of intermarket correlation. As things correlate, as things start to become more volatile, capital starts to move away from them sure. and vice versa. Sure. And, and do you expect um, in the long run that each of the four groups will contribute approximately the same amount of performance to, to the overall product or, or are they sort of geared to to do also a little bit different things in, in that respect? It's hard to know what's going to happen in the future. If you look back historically, they've all done a pretty nice job. Okay. Um, they've all been significant contributors to profits, both in real time and in, in, in simulation. You know, we, we built them all with the expectation that they will all make money uh, over the long term. They all have very compelling compounded annual growth expectations. Mm. Some are higher than others. What we've done basically is cut our volatility in half. Sure. In the old days when we were doing just system family A, you know, um, we expected, you know, we, we saw volatility certainly, certainly on average around 15, um, but, you know, obviously spiking higher at times um, and drawdowns of You know, in we we've had a few drawdowns in the high teens and even one around 20. The drawdowns for evolution we expect to have are half of that. Sure. Are half of that. And that is a function of, you know, again, this this fact that we have four complementary systems, all with weaknesses, admittedly, but weaknesses that we believe are compensated for by the strengths of each of each of the other systems. So to give you some context. The best year we've seen in the last 20 for System Family A is an up 21%. Mm -hmm. The worst year, negative four. Sure. Okay. System Family B, the best year, 23. The worst year, flat. System Family C, the best year, only 11. The worst year, positive one. That's actually a more robust system in terms of delivering positive outcomes. Sure. System Family D, the best year, up 13. The worst year, down two. 
Uh, and on average, over the last 20 years, system family A has been at six, system family B has been about seven and a half, system family C has been about five and a half, and system family D has been about four. This is as they're blended sure. algorithmically. Sure. So what you can see is when you blend them, you reduce downside. You certainly take a little bit off the upside of all of them. But what you get is a steady, what we think, you know, return profile. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Jason, I want to shift gear a little bit um, because another thing that I think is important just for, for people to um, get a better understanding of is also the the trade implementation mm-hmm. uh, because clearly running multiple systems and, and um, you know having a lot of computerized uh, algorithms going on all the time, people might find it uh, you know to be quite a daunting task to uh, to implement. But of course, that's another thing that you have uh, thought through and 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 um, and and resolved so how how does it work with all these things going on at the same time how do you actually implement all the trades uh, implementation is 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 critical it's the key to all this honestly even if we had all these ideas 10 years ago i don't think we could have implemented them i don't think the technology existed i don't think there were sufficient people skilled in this kind of implementation sure. that we could have even hired thankfully we're in you know, modern times, 2013, 2014, and the technology does exist and the people with the talent do exist. And yes, ultimately it's, it's the marriage of technology and investing, something that Rick envisioned in the early seventies, you know, coming to fruition. Everything we do is, is automated. Uh, the models are built onto an automated platform. That automated platform, in-house platform then generates signals, which feed into an uh, a custom-built execution platform. That execution platform takes those signals and then feeds them into the market on an automated basis. And does and and does does the signal happen intraday or is it end of day uh, calculations and then implementation during the day or or how often do you actually sample the markets in order to calculate um, whether there is a signal or not? Those those are done. Uh, on a daily basis at the end of the day and the, the next day is kind of set up a queue is set up with all the possible positions that might might come on okay. um, and then on and then they're implemented as they hit in, in a given trading day mm. we are looking at some things that will start to move kind of in into a more intraday basis but for now we've found that we get better results doing things as we do them and as I mentioned, everything's automated. Uh, it is policed very closely by Chris Stanton and his staff. They watch things. And we certainly have the option to, for example, change an algorithm if we see a trade coming on and there's something going on in the market that makes us think that we can get a better execution using a slightly modified fill-out algorithm. Sure. So there, so it, it, I wouldn't call that a manual override, but what that basically is, is Chris is watching things. Sure. He sees his trades coming on. He sees that it's going to use this type of uh, execution algorithm. And he says, wait a second, this is happening right now. I want to switch it to this kind of algorithm. Sure. And maybe that way we'll get better fills. Sure. Um, to give you some context, the slippage we're seeing so far since we implemented this in uh, early 2013 has been nothing but positive. Nothing but positive sure. over our over our assumptions in our simulations, so that's encouraging to us. Whether that will continue 
if we quadruple in size remains to be seen. Of course. But and for now, we're, we're winning the execution game, so to speak. That's always good. And, and, and how many trades do you do in a day on average, you think? Uh, you know, it, it'll depend. I mean, some days are quiet. Uh, some days are very loud. Um, last year, we did about 1,400 round turns, okay. Okay. which is about 4x uh, what we used to do when we were simply doing system family A and our long-term trend following approach. Sure. Uh, so we've certainly, you know, increased the amount of trading we do, but we think the benefits outweigh the costs. And in fact, the costs of doing all this have come down. Uh, it's kind of ironic, but the, the more volume we've done, the more leverage we've had with our partners to actually get prices that uh, we think are are more than reasonable and certainly better than market. And so I think our investors have benefited, have benefited handsomely, despite the fact that we're trading more. Yeah, clearly. You know, we've talked a little bit about the risk management, and and it it seems clear to me that one of the key focuses in evolution has been, you know, how do we improve the drawdown downside, and 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 that is of course part of of the overall risk management. Um, but you know, this the CT industry as a whole have had, at least in my experience, you know, a slightly different drawdown profile in the last couple of years. I mean, we've seen managers that have been around for decades um, suddenly experience drawdowns that were significantly larger than what they've seen before. Um, what's your kind of take on that? And without giving anything away, um, I mean, how, how have you dealt with that and, and, and sort of managed to, to improve at least conceptually um, what you're doing clearly in, in evolution, which is, you know, so much better than, than the traditional trend follower. Well, there's two levels to that. If you just look at system family, a, if you look at our legacy trend following approach, which as I've discussed is something that we started building in the seventies and have continued to enhance since then, um, it's always been a little different. It had a very good 2008. I think we were up almost 35% in 2008, which was significantly better than a lot of the, the longer-term trend-following shops. Sure. Um, and then in 2009, we actually were profitable. We made uh, nearly 5% yeah. in a year when many trend followers had a lot of problems. Sure. We slipped up in 2010. Uh, we were down about 5%, and that was a year that actually a lot of the bigger trend followers did pretty well. And then in 2011, we flipped the script again, and we were up a couple percentage points in a year when a lot of long-term trend followers were down. So in other words, what we've done always has been a little different. And how have we looked at trend following? As I alluded to earlier, I think we take risk differently. I think we tend to pile in our risk a little earlier in yeah. trends than a lot of our peers do. Um, and I also think that we are quite evolved and systematic as to how we scale in and out of that risk. Okay. Um, you know, breaking trades up into very small pieces, giving them each their own kind of destiny from a statistical standpoint, mm. aggressively using profit targets, um, using a wide range of different um, trailing stops on what we do, we think gives us a different profile. And that's, I think, probably why we perform differently and why I think we've ma you know managed to not be terrible in long-term trend following for the most part in the last five years, even though it's been very hard to do. Yeah. We certainly haven't been great. And we certainly haven't been thrilled with 
you know, just the long-term trend following component of our our models uh, over the last five years. And and I don't think any trend follower has been because it's been very hard, as you mentioned. Sure. So in addition to, you know, continuing to hone our trend following models and make them as good as can be, I think we also had to have some intellectual honesty. And that was, you know, the revelations that Rick started to un- unfold in the early 2000s, which was, hey, guys, trend following is starting to decay, yeah. no matter how you do it, yeah. whether it's David Harding's approach or, or Martin Lueck's approach or Bluecrest's approach, they're decaying. Sure. You know, this government invention intervention we're seeing is changing the way markets work. Now, th- we may go back to an environment where trend following works beautifully, but we don't know when that's going to happen. So in addition to making the, your trend following models the best you can be, as they can be, as we believe we have, we've also said you need to start using some other techniques, and you need to blend them in in a way that they complement rather than cripple your trend following. Yeah. And that's really the second piece of what we've done. And I think other guys have, and gals in the space have done similar things, but I'm certain not exactly like Sunrise. Sure. And that's our four-quadrant approach, our kind of multifamily algorithmic blend of different techniques. And that to us has been the key to cracking the last five years. If you look at a back test of, of Sunrise Evolution and obviously our real-time results last year, we delivered double-digit returns in each of the years since 2008, yeah. with the exception of one, yeah. using this, the evolution approach. And I don't think there's a single trend-following model on Earth that can st- say that. No, I think you're right about that, and um, and and it it does sound. I mean, it does sound different, and it does sound that it's a lot of it is based on the concept of models rather than the weighting of sectors, which, in my opinion, has been more of a, a lucky punch because we know people who have been overweight in equities and and fixed income yeah. for that matter just by default have done well, but it doesn't yes. really tell us anything about whether their models are better than anyone else's. Agree with you at 100%. We've had this discussion internally. We've had this exact same discussion, which is the the game of picking sectors is a fool's errand. It's it's luck. It's happenstance. I mean, yeah, we just came off one of the greatest bond trades in history, sure. one of the greatest you know trends ever. Um, but if that didn't happen, how would everyone's results look? Sure. Very different. Yeah. Very different. Yeah, Are no, we going to sit around here and try and guess where the next trade of a lifetime is going to be? Or, or are we going to build something that's agnostic to those kind of factors that you really can't predict? Sure. Um, and that was, our, that was the path we chose. We have always believed in, in allocating roughly equally to every sector and allocating roughly equally to most markets within those sectors because we don't know which market's going to pop in a given year. We don't know which sector is going to pop in a given year. But what we do know through science and math and statistical study is what kind of inefficiencies and patterns will proliferate themselves in those markets. And so our bet is that if we're looking for if we're focused on finding a wide range of patterns and inefficiencies across all the markets, we're going to end up beating the people who are trying to pick the winning sectors and markets all the time. Sure. No, I mean that. Now, that's... time will prove time will prove whether we're right or not. But that's the bet we're making. Sure. I agree with you 100. percent Some people, you you have no idea how good their models are because they simply overweighted the right sector or the right market. Yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> Lots of more things that we could talk about in terms of drawdowns, and uh, but I want to move on. But before we do so, 
I want to ask a slightly different question that I think maybe not so much for the professional investors listening to this, but but for a lot of people who aspire to be the next sunrise and and getting into this industry. And that is, you know, we, we've certainly chosen an industry that emotionally puts us uh, at stress since uh, CTAs and strategies that we run very often find themselves in in some kind of a drawdown. Oh goodness, yes. So 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 I, I was just curious to know how you balance that emotionally to uh, you know always be you know somewhat away from from a new equity high and 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 dealing with that and the roller coaster of 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 the way uh, performance is distributed in our industry. Do do you have any sort of uh, good advice for people out there? Uh, it is very very hard. I I think I mean I respect the heck out of my partner Rick and and our other two founders Jack and Gary tremendously. And I think I respect them for a lot of reasons, but I think the biggest reason I respect them is that they were able to kind of weather and put up with that phenomenon you you detailed for 30 years. Yeah. 30 plus years because it is hard being in a draw there's no feeling like being in a drawdown sure. you feel bad for yourself because you obviously built these models and they aren't working at this particular time you feel bad for yourself because you've obviously got a lot of your own money invested in this strategy and you're losing money at that point and you feel the worst for your investors your friends your family trusted industry confidants and others who've entrusted you with their capital and at, and at a particular time you're losing money for them and that's very very hard to to reconcile uh, if you're passionate and you care about what you do you're going to feel bad when that happens so the challenge and the advice i give is you have to find outlets you have to find ways to manage that mm. you um you need partners yeah. for example um Oftentimes, when you have partners in your business, it's rare you'll all be down in this at the same time. You know the way our partnership works. There'll be times when one of us is more down than the other, and we pick each other up. That's very, very important. Doing this alone, I don't know how people can do it. Honestly, yeah. um, it's it's it, so I would I would say to the extent you want to carry forward in this business, try and find build a team around you of people who can complement you, sure. um, and 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 lift you up when you're down, and vice versa. The other thing is, um, you know, don't panic. If if you've done the work going into it, you've built robust models, you you you've done done the work ahead of time, and you trust what you've built. You have to know that drawdowns are part of what you do. Every single investment strategy has drawdowns, whether it's a CTA strategy, whether it's a stock picking strategy, um, you know, whether it's an index. A simple index 40 act fund. There are drawdowns. They happen. And so, you know, you have to just trust that you've done the work and you've done what you need to do um, and that you will come through it. Now, at the, trust doesn't mean blindly, you know, looking off into space and just assuming it'll fix itself. When you're in a drawdown, you need to watch it. You need to learn from it. And you need to try and see if there's anything endemic in that drawdown that might allow you to improve your systems in the future we have a saying around sunrise which is never let a drawdown go to waste sure so when it happens look at it study it it might reveal to you a very simple change that you might make that isn't going to prevent drawdowns in the future i don't think you can do that but might prevent the kind of drawdown you're seeing from happening again sure so you know that would be the third piece is learn so partners you know, 
have faith in what you're doing and, and, and understand that drawdowns are part of the process, but three, learn from them. Sure. And actually, that's quite a, a good segue into to the next area that I just want to touch upon because I know we've already already gone uh, you know beyond the hour and i really appreciate uh, your 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 time here but i, I want to touch a little bit about research because clearly research is something that really drives uh, you know your firm and and uh, maybe you could just again for the audience describe a little bit about you know what's the typical research cycle in in your opinion and i think you're absolutely right about you know, you learn from, from, from what happens in a drawdown and that might give you ideas to future research, but just describe in general how, how you approach research. Well, to us, research is, is a constant. Um, you know, it's tricky in this business. A lot of people, they want to see innovation, but they don't want to see see change and they're very, Correct. They're, they're very you know, they sound like the same word, but they're not. Hmm. Um, you know, people will look at you and they'll say, well, what's your R&D? What are you doing? Oh, that sounds exciting. That sounds exciting. But when they actually focus on your models, they want to see some consistency. They want to see that you've kind of been doing the same thing for a long time. Otherwise, they don't trust it. Sure. So it's, it's, it's a razor's edge to walk. But our view has been, like I said earlier, if you are standing still, you're falling behind. Mm. So we are constantly looking every day. Is are the results we're getting in the markets matching our assumptions? Are they matching how we've simulated this thing? If not, why? Are there areas we can improve? Are there things we can change? Are there assumptions we made that are just flat out wrong? Always questioning what we're doing, always looking at that. And so that process in and of itself is a is often a source of ideas for how we can improve things is watching what you're doing compared to how you expect it to behave. Mm. Um, but secondarily to that, you always, at least at Sunrise, we always have a queue of different ideas that just people find interesting. Mm. You know, so-and-so will say, you know, I think we can make a lot of money doing X, Y, Z in the following five markets, and I'm going to go ahead and look into that. Great. You know, Mr. A, you go and do that, and then bring us back a report next week, and we'll see what 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 it looks like. You know, on the queue, there'll be an idea of a, a simple concept of, I think, you know, um, that if we, you know, moved all of the stops in these particular markets in this direction, it would cut volatility by X. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you know, person B, go look at that question and come back and report. So it's kind of this dual track. You're kind of watching what you do and comparing it on a day-to-day -day basis. And then on the other side, you're working on projects of interest to, to the smart people that you've you've hired and entrusted to work on things. And where the next great innovation is going to come from, you don't know. It could come from one of those projects on the queue. Um, although, you know, honestly, when you have a queue of 10, 10 things you're working on, Ultimately, maybe only one of them turns into something of significance, sure. but that's okay. That's the process. <clears throat> or the, the next great innovation might come from that, that other process, which I mentioned, which is comparing, just simply comparing and contrasting assumptions to what's actually happening on a day-in, day-out basis. One of the best innovations we had in the last two years was Chris Stanton, my partner, watching our systems work and seeing something that was happening over and over again and going back to Rick and saying, Rick – as I execute this thing, I'm telling you, this is happening over and over again. If we make this slight change, I think we're going to see a material improvement in what we do. And sure enough, 
that's exactly what happened. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, um, research is about finding all the things that doesn't work before the f you find the things that work. And, and you know, so that's, that's, Absolutely. that's, that's what it's all about. And it's funny, I, I saw uh, uh, just this week, actually, uh, there's a, a fun article in the uh, Hedge Fund Journal written by, uh, I think it was the SEB Asset Select uh, head, of, head of that firm, uh, about the, the 10 fallacies of, of picking a manager. And of course, one of them, was you know the number of PhDs in a firm? Does that actually have any correlation to the success of the firm? Um, and uh, so you know, there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, views about uh, research and and uh, you know uh, number of research staff and and so on and so forth. And in fact, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and that's a, you know, and as 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 a smaller manager like us, I mean, I think you probably see that every day, which is you'll meet with some people and they'll say, well you know, you, your team's a little small, uh, you know, how do you, how do you compete against, sure. you know, David Harding and his, you know, dozens of PhDs? Sure. And my answer is always look at the results. Yeah. I mean, last sure. year we outperformed David Hart. Does that mean we're smarter than David Harding? Not necessarily. Does that mean we're smarter than a room full of PhDs? Not necessarily, but certainly it undermines the notion that if you have lots of PhDs, you are a, by default, a better manager. Sure. because the disparity in results and you know what i think that we probably all in our industry have a phd because if we just term it passion hunger and drive i mean i think that's what it's all about <laughs> i like that i like that there now i'm a phd because i exactly. have passion, hunger and drive um yeah i mean look i i will never disparage a phd there are some brilliant phds and there's probably brilliant phds working in this space and there's probably some working in this space who've come up with some brilliant investment ideas but to me to use that as kind of the sole basis or a, a large part of the basis for your making your investment decisions is is makes no sense oh. never has yeah. jason I want to finish off just by going a little bit off track because, I mean, you've been so generous with your insights and your time, but I, I think it's important that, that um, you know, you also perhaps share some of your uh, experience, uh, sort of more maybe in an advisory to uh, people who want to, uh, uh, you know, join this industry and, 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 and also for people just generally to learn from. So, I mean, in your opinion, what are some of the, the traits that you need to have to be or become a, a great CTA? What, what does it take in, in your opinion? Um, you have to be passionate about it. If you do not love doing this, if you do not love finance, if you do not love markets, if you do not get a thrill out of beating the markets, it is not the space for you. That it, it, It's too hard to do without passion. Sure. Passion's the only thing that can carry you through the, the the hard times, the drawdowns, the you know the inevitable moment where a client decides to to withdraw their money from your fund. Um, you know, it, it's just too hard to do without passion. So you got to bring that. Assuming you have that, then I think you know, I think the traits that make anyone successful at anything, um, you know, hard work, diligence, curiosity, you know continually reading and studying others in the industry to learn, um, you know, working well with others, building, as I mentioned, having teammates and partners, having, have building a, a network of people around you to support you, whether they're actually your employees or partners or whether they're outsourced providers, e either one, 
you know, that's absolutely critical, you know, being detail oriented and, um, and, you know, ridiculously, um, attentive to, to the, the little things is critical to success in this business. Um, and honestly, hard work, just working really hard and putting yourself in a position to get lucky. Because if anyone in this business says that luck doesn't play a role in their success, they are in complete denial. As you know, markets can do very strange things at very strange times for reasons that no one could have ever predicted. And if you happen to have something that captures that effectively and generates a return off of that at the right time and an investor notices that and based on that, they allocate you $100 million, there's a little luck involved in that. Now, you can't get to that moment without all the other things I mentioned in the hard work, but ultimately you need to get a little lucky. But as, as a great man once said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And <laughs> as, as another great philosopher, Vince Lombardi, who was the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers American football team, said, you know, gentlemen, and I'm paraphrasing, he said in a speech to his team, gentlemen, we will, we will strive every day for perfection here with the Green Bay Packers, not because we can ever achieve perfection because that's impossible, but knowing that in pursuing perfection, we will always achieve excellence. And, you know, that's really what I try and instill in my team is let's try and be perfect today. Um, knowing that we can't be, but knowing that if we work on being perfect, the likely outcome is going to be excellence. And I think that's what's kept Sunrise going uh, for 34 years. And I'm hoping that's what will allow us to work well, for another 34 years. Sure. And of course, I mean, you know, uh, as, as, as CTAs, we're also entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur, it's, uh, you know, there are many failures before there are successes. And, and I was just wondering whether you could share, you know, you know a, a, a failure in your opinion that you've been through and, and, and what you learned from it. Because we, we all you know, we evolve as well as, 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 as business people and not just from a research point of view, but there could be just something that you could think of that you said, wow, you know, had I known that today, I would have done it differently. Oh, boy. I mean, I, I fail every day. You know, I think, I think failure is uh, an absolute necessity to success uh, in any business, particularly our business. Um, my view with decisions is every decision I make, I have to first get comfortable with the fact that it could be the wrong decision, but be confident enough to make it anyway um, and know that the outcome of a decision could be a failure, but be confident enough to make it anyway. I think that is a critical trait for any entrepreneur and, and anyone in our in our field. And in our business, in particular at Sunrise, where have we failed? Oh, there's all kinds of places we failed. I mean, I, I think the biggest failure is our succession planning. I think it probably needed to start earlier. When you look back at the arc of our assets, I mean, the gentleman who founded the firm got it well over $2 billion uh, by the early 2000s. Yet here I am, you know, 15 years later, sitting with 200 million. Sure. There was some kind of failure there. I think the founders would be the first to admit that. Sure. They should have probably done something differently than what they did. Now, what they what they should have done differently, it's hard to know. Sure. Um, I mean, certainly in retrospect, you know exactly what you should have done. But at the time, how should they have proceeded differently? I don't know. 
but obviously there there maybe there would have been a way to keep more of the assets now maybe 2008 was just too big of an event and it was so seismic that there was no way to hold on to assets no matter how good you did yeah. i mean think about this how do you deal with this as a business person you're going to do the best you've ever done at what you do in over a decade which is what we did in 2008 delivering a 35% positive return during one of the greatest financial crises in history. But when you do that, nearly a billion dollars of the assets you manage are going to go out the door. How do you, I mean, as a, how do you reconcile that? That's a very, very that's a, that's a very strange thing. No one would ever expect success to be punished Hmm. as much as it was, but it was because we were in a crisis and because our particular investors needed Liquidity. Cash quickly. Yeah. Sure. Um, one of our largest investors essentially went out of business hmm. because of 2008. I mean, so, so you know, I guess the failure there was not view, not taking into account the possibility of a seismic, perhaps once in a lifetime event happening, hmm. like we saw in 2008. So yeah, failure is is abounds in our business. Uh, you know, every day, like I said, I probably fail. There's maybe a conversation with an employee I should have had or a conversation I had with that employee that, you know, in retrospect, I should have worded differently. Um, you know, there's, uh, just any number of things that can go, go wrong in a business. And, and it's not a, you know, the measure of a business is how well it owns its mistakes, fixes its mistakes, and carries forward wiser and smarter so that doesn't make those mistakes again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, <clears throat> what what does a perfect day look like in 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 your life? What uh, what inspires you Jason uh, coming into work every day? <sighs> the perfect day. Well, we had a lot of perfect days here in the San Diego area. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, certainly from a weather perspective. Uh, no, I mean a perfect day for me is obviously starts with all the things that have nothing to do with my business. And that's, you know, my personal life. Obviously if my kids are smiling and happy when I drop them off at school and they're excited about their lives and the possibilities ahead for them, you know, that's a big part of it. Obviously I wish the same for my wife every day. Um, and, and, and the, you know, my loved ones and friends, um, I take a lot of joy in the, in the the success and happiness of other people. So I start there, but then when I actually get to work the perfect day, you know, my employees are all uh, excited to be at work and, and enjoying themselves and, and, and uh, you know, doing good work and making a difference for our investors in, in their different roles. Um, markets are, are moving in a direction favorable to us. And maybe we've, we're up, uh, you know, 150 or 200 basis points for the day. Certainly that that always make, puts, a, puts a bounce in my step. Sure. And then, you know, the day ends with, uh, you know, Sovereign Wealth Fund XYZ calling and saying, you know, we've been tracking you guys for three years and we love what we're seeing and we'd like to allocate uh, uh, half a billion dollars uh, next next Monday. Uh, that would be a good day. You know, <laughs> that would be a very, very good day, I'd have to say. I like that. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Sure. <laughs> No, I think that is actually a good uh, that is a good uh, way to leave it. But you know, before we finish, um, maybe you could tell sort of our listeners where they can best reach out to you and and learn more about Sunrise. Sure. Well, uh, we've we've built a, a pretty good website. I think www.sunrisecapital.com. I think you'll get a good flavor for 
what we do there. Um, we don't put a whole lot of information there because the regulators obviously have some fairly um, strict rules, but there's some videos of myself, of my partner, Rick. Uh, there's some thought pieces we've done, a white paper, and you can just start to get a flavor for Sunrise. But ultimately, the best way to learn about us is to just give me a call, 858-259-8911. Um, and you know, let's talk on the phone. Let's do a Skype or a webinar or come into the office or have us come meet you. We'll sit down. We'll bring some drawings. We'll bring some studies. We'll bring some of our materials. We'll, we'll go up on the whiteboard and we'll draw all this stuff out. I couldn't even begin to do justice to what we do in, in this format. All I could do is give you all kind of a, a taste of what we're, we're about. But I think when people sit down with us for an hour or two um, and, and, and hear from my partners, Rick or Chris, and, and, and see things kind of laid out on a whiteboard, they it starts to click for them and they start to understand what we do why it why it has a good chance of working in the future and why it's complementary and beneficial to their portfolios and and that ultimately is is the best way to to approach it a, a good in-person meeting or, or telephone call so you know again 858-259-8911 or my email is jgarlock at sunrisecapital.com and uh, reach out to me anytime. Uh, I look forward to hearing from each and every one of you. Jason, I think you have certainly done, uh, you know, yourself justice in in terms of laying out uh, the 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 great things that you do at Sunrise. And I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, our conversation today. And I really appreciate the the openness and the willingness, uh, you know, to share your insights and views of your strategy and the firm, and and the industry as a whole. Um, so and of course our listeners will be able to find uh, you know in the show notes uh, more about sunrise and uh, i hope we can connect at a later date and see where you are and all the great work you do absolutely well Niels, thank you so much for putting this forum together and uh, i think it's 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 great a great idea and i appreciate you as i mentioned getting information out is critical to the success of our industry and, uh, you know, as a part of this industry, I want to see it grow. I want all of our firms to grow and succeed. And, and you're obviously going to do a lot to, to make that happen. And, and I can't thank you enough for giving me this platform and for your kind words. And I look forward to collaborating with you again soon in the future. Great stuff, Jason. Take care and, and all the best. Take care, Niels. Bye. Ciao. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.